Support for Mind, Body, Health, and Politics comes from our members and the Mendocino Coast District Hospital, offering medical services including emergency room, obstetrics, intensive care, inpatient services, home health, ambulance services, physical therapy, laboratory, diagnostic imaging, oncology services, and more. More information about Mendocino Coast District Hospital and its services is at mcdh.org. Support also comes from our members and Radiant Solar Technology, ready to help plan power systems, advise on applicable incentives, conform to current codes, and prepare for future expansion. From solar panels to high-tech battery boxes, through sun, wind, and water, RST helps homes and businesses fill their renewable energy needs. Information at 485-8359 and radiancesolartech.com. Thank you for joining us for today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. Here in the studio today with me is our engineer, Mike DeLora, and our special guest, philosopher, Charles Bush. We've been broadcasting Mind, Body, Health, and Politics now for over 10 years, and the object of the program is to bring you topics and people that you would not necessarily here on other radio stations or other television stations. Over these 10 years, we've brought you hmm, Dr. Stella Resnick, Dr. Janet Hardy, and Dr. Lonnie Barback, who talked to us about human sexuality. We had the Fort Bragg police chief, Fabian Lizarraga, who talked to us about what it's like being the police chief of a small city on the north coast of California. We had Countess Amanda Fielding coming to us from England, bringing us information on the latest brain research on LSD. What does your brain look like on LSD, and what does your brain look like when it's not on LSD? What a surprising, what a surprising result she got to see that most of the brain is not lit up when it's not on LSD, but when you take some LSD, your brain is lit up as if it's activated, and the activation came from oxygen. Interesting research. We had lawyer John Allison talking to us about transforming the practice of law, bringing the human into the law office. He told us about what it's like working in law offices where the young lawyers are working 60, 70, and 80 hours a week and so are subject to drug addiction, and the lawyers have the highest levels of alcoholism and drug addiction of almost any occupation. We heard Larissa Mifakwa on her book, Strangers Drowning, about people who do extreme things to help one another, including a college professor who literally lives on the street because he donates his entire salary to other people with no middleman. He gives them the money directly. And she had examples from all over the world of people doing extreme things to help other people. We heard Julie Barton talk about her book, Dog Medicine, about how she saved herself. She actually says the dog saved her life, taking her out of a severe depression 
and turning her around. Great story. We had rabbi, psychologist, and author Michael Lerner talking to us about spiritual hunger and what that means for a population to have spiritual hunger. We had the Catholic priest, also a psychologist and author, Sean O'Laddy. He talked about the scientific research that he does on the effects of prayer. Interesting stuff. Then we had Ogi Ogos, Dr. Ogi Ogos, his book, A Billion Wicked Thoughts. He analyzed what the American public is looking at when they look at pornography. What kind of porn do we each look at? What's the most favorite kind of porn? What's the one word that people type in when they're looking at pornography more than any other word? And guess what the surprising word was? Mother. Mother. Who would have thought mother when you're looking at porn? We had Dr. Nick Cozy from the University of Wisconsin talking about his latest research in LSD. He's the foremost research scientist on LSD authorized by the government in the United States. We had Dr. Ofazur, psychologist and author, talking about sound psychotherapy practices. You know, what's the real stuff when you go into an office and sit with the psychologist and what do you want to really be talking about and how is it going to do you the most good? We had Dr. Ethan Nadelman, founder of the Drug Policy Alliance, the world's leading organization promoting alternatives to the war on drugs. Then we had Dr. Rick Doblin. He's the historic founder and executive director of MAPS. MAPS is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. If you want to Google it, you can get a lot of information. It's now sent. MAPS is, is actually celebrating its 25th year as the world's foremost pharmaceutical organization specializing in psychedelic medicine research. This is important stuff because, as we all know, actual research, scientific research, has been suppressed for over 50 years. And finally, there is some being done in the United States. We brought you the foremost scientists across the whole United States on this research into depression, into man mania, which is part of it, bipolar, in, uh, into various other uh, ways that these medicines are having a positive effect in the early research. By the way, if you want to just see all that psychedelic research in one place, you can go to my website, psychopedia.org, P-S-Y-C-H-E-P-E-D-I-A, psychopedia. Then we had Dr. Julie Holland, the Harvard-trained psychiatrist, whose latest book, Moody Bitches, The Truth About the Drugs You're Taking, the sleep you're missing, the sex you're not having, and what's really making you crazy. I remember one of the most important things that Julie taught us is that there's a negative interaction between birth control pills and what else? Guess what? SSRIs. 26 million women in the United States are taking SSRIs. Remember what that is, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. They stop the serotonin from being absorbed back into the body. There's a negative interaction. So we've got 26 million women taking SSRIs who are taking birth control pills, and that's why they're being called moody bitches, according to Dr. Holland. We had Dr. Chantelle Tibbles. She spent the several years of her life researching the adult sex industry. 
she shed light on popular understandings and misunderstandings of pornography, its enterprise, and its socio-cultural significance. We had Dr. Robin Zasio, a featured doctor on the Emmy-nominated A&E hit series Hoarders, and she's the host of Animal Planet's My Extreme Animal Phobia. She brought us her book, The Hoarder in You, How to Live a Happier, Healthier, Uncluttered Life. A life. This, these are some of the programs we brought over the te- last 10 years and what you can look forward to in the future. And by the way, if you have an author or a topic that you would like me to research or reach out to and bring on this program, please call during the program or send me an email. You can send an email to the station. Send an email to my private email, drrichardlmiller at gmail.com easy to do. I'll, I'll reach out to the person and see if I can get him on the program for you. Huh? Sounds good. Sounds good. <laughs> so that's, that's where we've been. That's where we're going. Happy New Year. Healthy New Year to all of you. So for those of you who are listening for the first time, I don't always start out with a retrospective, of course. What I typically start out with before introducing the guest of the day is news and notes in psychology and medicine. I want to bring you tidbits of important stuff that's just coming right off the press, really hot, so you can get involved with it and perhaps make some use, use of it yourself. I'll give you an example. P- prostate cancer, prostate cancer is, is terrible, it's dangerous, and the treatment for it is all over the board including, oh my gosh, increasing people's testosterone, decreasing people's testosterone. We even have men in this country who have had their testicles cut off as a treatment for prostate cancer. As That sounds barbaric, doesn't it? Not only that, when you have your prostate removed, nine out of the ten patients who have had it removed can no longer control their bat- bladders, and the males lose their erectile functioning. Disaster. Now we have a new treatment. It's a laser treatment. It's it's a combination of a drug that's made from bacteria that live in almost total darkness of the seafloor and which become toxic only when exposed to light. They put the lasers in through the perineum, that's the gap between the anus and the testicles, and right into the prostate, the cancerous prostate gland, they turn on the red light, along with they have already injected in these bacteria. When the light goes on, the bacteria are activated. It kills the cancer. 49% of the patients that were treated this way went into complete remission. Furthermore, all of them recovered their bladder and their erectile functioning. This is hot stuff. Laser treatment. Those of you who have anybody that you know who has a problem with the prostate ought to know about this treatment because it's really a game changer. It's a huge game changer. For less of a game changer, water. Hmm. More than 36,000 water samples were collected from around the United States by the Environmental Protection Agency, which, by the way, may go out of existence under the new administration. What they found was that there are unsafe levels of industrial chemicals unsafe 
chemicals in the drinking water of 33 states. California tops the list. Folks, you got to look into your drinking water. If you're lucky enough to get water off your own land, you're very lucky. But if you're getting it from a municipal district, you might want to make a phone call and find out from the district. Are they taking care of business? Or are you one of these that is full of PFASs, right? You don't want them in your drinking water. What else? News and notes. Another example of what we do on a regular basis. Noise. Noise pollution. Very dangerous. Elevated noise pollution can lead to hearing impairment, hypertension, heart disease, annoyance, sleep disturbance. It's called presbycusis. 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 It can occur to anyone at any time. It also causes tinnitus, also called tinnitus, hypertension, vasoconstriction. I mean, there are a lot of problems that occur if we are exposed to noise levels over a period of time. It doesn't have to be just being around a jackhammer for one day. It can be elevated noise over time, which is dangerous. So if you think you're in a work environment where that happens, talk to the boss, talk to somebody, see if you can get it reduced because over time, noise is really hazardous to your health. I'll give you one more example of news and notes. Cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. Cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome, or CHS, caused by heavy long-term use of various forms of marijuana It's not common, but it's being identified. It can be dangerous, but there's an easy cure, a hot shower, and of course, stopping the marijuana. Interestingly enough, what the researchers found is that since this syndrome, CHS, causes abdominal pain and vomiting, it can be very severe abdominal pain and vomiting, some of the marijuana users, when they got the nausea, took more marijuana because marijuana is known to stop nausea. It's used in cancer treatment. People who are taking cancer drugs who get nauseated from the drugs take marijuana and it reduces the nauseation. In this case, you don't want to take more. You want to take a hot bath. Now, why does a hot bath work for vomiting and nausea caused by cannabis? Well, there's a theory, which is that marijuana affects the thermoregulatory system of the body. And so we get too cold, or some people do, with marijuana over time. And the hot bath or the hot shower takes care of it. We'll keep you posted on this one. It's, uh, it's certainly worthy of note in this area, uh, known as being part of the Emerald Triangle, uh, sort of like burgundy in France is to wine. We're in that area of marijuana. Okay, so those are examples of news and notes in psychology and medicine. And then what we typically do is come on to our guest or book or author or what we have today. We have the philosopher, as I said before, Charles Bush. Hi, Charles. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Hi, Richard. It's a delight to be here, especially at the beginning of a, another cycle. You know, we, we make up these uh, wonderful stories, and then we overlay physical phenomenon. And uh, in many ways, that's a, a pretty good uh, definition of what a philosopher's work is. You encounter the world, you experience, 
and you investigate the stories that we weave around our encounters because of course we live in the world but the world appears to us as a story so we live inside the stories we make so we become incredible evolutionary designers and makers. Evolution takes a really long time to get us made, but once evolution got us made, it released this amazing phenomenon of mind and its relationship to body. And that's why I love your show, because your show is a philosopher's playground and a philosopher's dream. You actually investigate how mind impinges on the physical universe as it comes into us and how we we create culture, story, lifetimes, meaning, meaningfulness, all of that uh, as evolutionary designers in the world. And that's what philosophy is all about, is the investigation of the boundary between mind and physical reality and its outcome. And of course, that's what your show investigates so beautifully all the time. Listening to all the people that you had on, you go, well, for heaven's sake, that's what they're all doing. Investigating the possibilities of mind and story through human encounter with physical reality. We each become the story that we've made up over our lifetime, don't we? Absolutely. And Absolutely. then we often get stuck in the story as if it's the only story. This is a fascinating aspect of being a human being. We live this story for a certain number of years and then we are the story. Somehow, we can change that story, can't we? Absolutely. And we could become another story. Absolutely. But very few of us do that because it, it's, it I mean, just saying it out loud, it sounds so earth-shaking, so dramatic. I mean, could I be... Another me? I mean, I wouldn't even be me if I became another me. I'd exactly. be someone else. Imagine, uh, here's an area where mo most of us, uh, you know, in politics we say uh, it's the economy, stupid. And we say that because we've externalized economic inventions, stories, and designs so far in our minds that we think the world defines economics and of course economics is a made-up story in which we live together there are lots of different ways to articulate the story and therefore massive differences in the quality of life that results depending on the story we buy into and you know right now uh, we know that as technology impinges on us and as we reach some of the holding limits of the earth comfortable holding limits for our species of the earth suddenly this encounter between story and physical reality becomes vital and the economic tale we tell has a whole lot to do with how we navigate both inside the creation of our stories and how we navigate the real limits that the physical universe and the physical world puts on us. So it's a time that uh, calls for uh, the sciences of the mind, the investigation of the mind, the art of exploring the mind and the use of the mind to create new story in which we live. It's a time when all of those things um, are invited in as more vital perhaps than ever in our history because change is so fast and our impact is so vast. The way you say we create a new story, you make it almost sound easy. And I'm thinking animals create a story also. And each of them has their story of what they're going to be like. How is a dog acting like a dog? And how is a cat acting like a cat? And in thinking of the politics that is so much on everybody's mind now with the new presidential situation, I'm reminded of the story 
about this little family of monkeys that come to a river and there's a mama and a papa monkey and three little baby monkeys and the mama and the papa and two of the babies quickly run across the river when the river is low and just as the last little baby is going to run across the river comes up and the little baby can't make it across and along comes an alligator and the alligator looks at that little baby and he says jump on my back i'll swim you across to the other side and then you'll be with your family and the little baby says, wait a minute, he says, uh, you're an alligator. And he says, yes, but I'm, I'm, you're just a little baby, you know, so I'll take you across. So the little baby jumps on the back of the alligator, and they swim across and swim across. And just as they're about to get to the other side, the alligator turns around and snap, eats that little baby. <laughs> and you know why? Because it was an alligator. And that's it. See, the alligator's got his story, Absolutely. and that's what he does. He eats little baby monkeys and anything else that he can get uh, that's a piece of meat to swallow down. And I think, you know, that's what we can expect from the politicians, all of them, on both sides of the aisle, going forward. They are who they are, and they're going to act who they are, and there's no reason to expect any different unless suddenly they all do, like, listen to this program and say, wait a minute. I could change my story. Uh. Well, that, and you know, the amazing thing, of course, is that, that um, alligators live inside their story. Their environments can change a little bit. They change too much. Uh, alligators don't continue to live. Alligators are particularly successful, um, but they don't redesign their stories and they don't redesign the textures and qualities and interactions and patterns of their lives. And if there's anything that is unique about humans, certainly we are the inheritors of, of all live and non-live creatures. But the interesting thing is, um, like every some strange uh, capability that changes the course of its evolution, what we developed was the ability to make story, change story, and change the way we live inside story and use story to redesign elements of our own bodies, our own intelligence, and to alter the external reality in ways that dance together new. And so um, I, get, I get temporarily, short-termly fearful when the story seems to take a change for the worse or for the better, depending, for instance, if you think about the election, you either are overjoyed or you're dismayed. This one didn't leave very many people just neutral. Well, I don't know about that, if you don't mind my interrupting. Yeah. The reason I say I interrupt here quickly is because only 40% of the people voted. That's true. I, that means 60% are either neutral or don't give a care. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely the story. That, we have to remind ourselves yeah. all the time that 60% of the public did not take part, participate in this event. They yeah. may, and we don't really know if they don't care or maybe they were not allowed to vote or, or they were sick that day or who knows what. But 60% is a very large number of people who did not participate in this election. I want to come back to what you were saying about, the, about change because today is the first broadcast of the new year. And people often do something called New Year's resolutions. And a New Year's resolution is really an attempt to change the story, isn't Absolutely. it? Isn't that what it is? That's exactly so, what we're doing. So, so I, I want to read something here that I, I have about, uh, about New Year's resolutions because there's some research on it. It turns out that in a study of 5,000 people who made resolutions, in other words, well, I'm going to do something to change my story, 
the ones who had a fatalistic attitude were the most unlikely, the least likely to succeed. Fatalistic attitude. Those who say, oh, that's the way it's always going to be, or wouldn't you know it, or that's my luck, or, you know, some kind of thing of it's going to continue. It's, it, what happens is when old habits creep back in, these fatalistic people see the temporary setbacks as a reason to give up totally, such as, oh, I ate a biscuit, I might as well give up. Or, you know, I wasn't going to eat ice cream since I ate that ice cream, it's over for the year. You know, I, I'm not going to make it. Or whatever the particular thing is. You know, I'm used to speeding. I promise myself I'm going to stay within the limit because it really doesn't make any difference. You don't get any f- there any faster, really, when you speed or not. And I know this. And why should I endanger my wife and my kids or myself? But then they speed and they say, oh, I guess I'm just a speeder. That's the fatalistic acid. I'm just that kind of person, you know. Oh, you know, I'm, I'm going to stop drinking, and then they have a drink. Well, I'm off the wagon. I guess I'm off the wagon. But persistence, persistence is the key to a resolution. Mm-hmm. That reminds me, Michael, of that chart that you gave me one time where the most important thing on the chart in terms of success in the world was persistence, persistence, persistence. The next thing that works in terms of, of change and a resolution, according to the research, is spreading the word. Support from family and friends can help people stick to their goals. Telling people what the goal is, telling your family and friends, and asking for support. It turns out here that women benefit more than men because women are more able and better at offering moral support. Men tend to tell you to go ahead, have a dessert, or have another beer, so what? So... We need a little help there, guys, and women keep up the good work. What else is good? Plotting your resolution. This can be something public like a blog, or it can be a note on the refrigerator door, or it can be a spreadsheet or a journal. You write down each time you go to the gym, or you write down that you didn't have the cake. There's something about writing down or announcing, keeping some kind of a list, a checklist, to show you how much you're achieving your goals. Of course, business people know that. Michael, you know that from all your work with metrics, right? You write down as you're making progress. So here we have persistence, spread the word, keep a chart, have achievable goals. Have achievable goals. You can't lose 40 pounds the first week, but you can lose a pound or two the first week. And that's one of the difficult things with weight loss because you can't make a huge accomplishment in a very short period of time. You have to do it over a long period of time, and you've got to check, 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 and keep doing it. And the last one here, oh, this is a good example. Yeah, you can, on, on the achievable goal, you don't start right out, the research says, by saying, I think I'll, I'll run a marathon. You know, you've got to start with a couple of hundred yards as actually that I did, and then you increase and you increase over time. And the last one for, for that they, the researchers state for uh, New Year's resolutions or for change is understanding your triggers. What are the kinds of things that trigger you to either do the thing that you don't want to do anymore? So, for example, if it's cutting down on snacks, then you don't want them right on your desk. That's pretty obvious, right? If you're If you want to go to the gym, then you might 
have a positive trigger, such as the time that you go every day, or when you hear the news in the morning, that's the time to put on your sneakers. So you have some kind of a connection between a trigger that gets you to either do it or not do it. So these are five things that researchers have found that make changing your story through a new, new Year's resolution. Persistence, spreading the word, plotting your progress, having achievable goals, and then understanding the triggers that, uh, that set them off. Can we do those kinds of things in terms of actually changing our life story, Charles? Oh, I think we do. All, I mean, in fact, I think we do those things all, all the time. Um, let's, uh, let's flip. I'm going to flip over to something that uh, I think both of us have appreciated, the work of Stuart Brand uh, as a, a culture commentator and mover, uh, an influencer. And uh, one of the articles that set me off on, on the deepest philosophical investigation in my life um, is expressed in the title of a little essay he wrote, um, Is the World Getting Better or Worse? And, and a really important question to try to answer seriously because uh, it has all to do with what we do and how we behave and what our attitude and feelings and so on are, and it's something that can be investigated. His answer was exciting because what he said was, well, you know, it's always getting better in the long run, and it's always getting worse in the short run. I thought about that for years. I thought, how could those two things possibly be true? And, and uh, I, I think 2017, we're moving into a new news cycle because of a new election cycle, and we're going to reset in a certain way and follow in different ways. So um, the long, what, he, what he meant by that was, I think, that, that uh, if you look at long trends, trends that, that uh, happen over years, five years, 10 years, and so on, uh, if you examine them carefully, like Peter Diamandis in his great recent book, Abundance, published in 2012, great book. Everybody ought to take a look at that book. Say it again, please, for us. Uh, called Abundance by Peter Diamandis. It was published in 2012. Since the, in the back of that chart, at the back of that book, he has uh, 80 charts that track uh, the improvement in the quality of human life and in the quality um, of the circumstances of human life. 80, 80 tables. He's collected another 40 of them in the last uh, few years here. They overwhelmingly show us uh, that by every measure of human life quality, things have gotten immensely more rapidly better for more people than ever at any time in our history, and the rate of that improvement is accelerating. Measure that against the short story, not the long story. The short story is our three-hour now, six-hour news cycle. Certainly, every day you read the news, and it's a whole new reset. And, uh, of course, one of the things that we know is that, that there are about 50 new important news stories every day in every news cycle. And of the 50, 45 of them, 45 of them will, will uh, explain something that's terrible, desperate, evil, uh, painful, hurtful, uh, and so on. News is not just news. News is um, about what's wrong, what went wrong, and because we have to come up with 50 new stories, and because we can only manage about 50 new stories, we get 50 new stories about terrible things that happen every single day. And we all know that. We all know and that. And we're all bombarded with that. At the same time, what we don't look at is the change in life quality over a longer period of time, carefully and meticulously measured, and compare those to those news stories. Interestingly enough, and I tried to figure out the reason, and I think it really boils down to this. The long picture is that we're getting better at everything. 
the short picture is we have space for about 50 stories and we've gotten in the habit of telling bad stories, not good stories. There are millions of good stories probably for every bad story and yet we get hooked in because of nude cycle to forgetting what's actually happening and living inside a story that we make up that says, oh my God, it's going to hell in a handbasket. We are doomed. Whatever's going to happen, we have too many problems. We can't solve them. And we live inside of that, which is the most unhealthy possible place to live. And most importantly, it's 100% false. It's simply not true. The facts don't bear that out by any kind of measure. The deeper you measure, the more you realize that we are, not only have we gotten a foothold, but we're moving that foothold forward in hundreds of thousands of ways all the time. But our story invention process, called the news, doesn't allow us to tell a story that's a reality. It captures us in a story that's an utter fiction of gloom, doom, and complaint. This is an extremely important point that you're making, Charles, and I think it goes way beyond the news. It goes to the little news that we call gossip in the neighborhood. Absolutely. Because if a friend of mine is driving from X to Y, if he's driving from Willits, California to Fort Bragg and has an accident, that's something I'm going to talk about. Hey, Fred had an accident. Oh, my God, is he in the hospital? Is he okay? Is it all right? Fred could make that same trip a thousand times safely. I don't talk about how many times Fred made. Hey, did you hear Fred made that trip safely? Hey, by the way, Michael just drove all the way from Santa Rosa to, uh, to, to, to uh, the Bay Area. Didn't have any problems. Right. Who t we don't do that kind of thing. There's something dramatic, right? And there's something intensely concerning about bad news. Because, That's exactly it. Right? Yeah. Because either a person that we know gets hurt or a thousand people get hurt. I, I read an interesting statistic, a comment by, by Mao Zedong, who said, if one person gets killed, that's a tragedy. If a million people get killed, that's a statistic. Exactly. And that's, exactly. A, that's, very, that's related to what we're talking about, right? Now, There's so, an abstractness to a million people getting killed, but if your friend gets killed, that's very real and very close. Well, and as a psychologist, um, I, you know, of course, that... that uh, one of our most spontaneous gestures is to identify and solve problems. If you were going to say, what's a human being? You would say a human being is the most general purpose problem solver thus far invented in this little local area of the universe. My cat doesn't solve very many problems every day. I solve 20, 50, maybe every single day. Now, problems catch our attention because we have that capacity to solve them. It's in fact our ability to design solutions that, that makes us highly sensitive to the multitude of problems that arise, difficulties, little strangeness, because we don't assume that if things are bad, we just have to belly up and go, okay, wait it out, there's nothing we can do about it, it'll just have to change by itself. We know that we can adjust all kinds of things. I'm driving down the road, a uh, car coming toward me begins to swerve over in my lane, all I have to do is shift the wheel a little bit to the right. Problem identified, problem solved. If my cat was driving, mm, maybe not, <laughs> okay? So I guess what I'm saying is it is in fact the ingeniousness of our evolutionary gift, the ability to, to design solutions to problems that also highly sensitizes us to problems. The balance to me is keeping the long view in mind at all times 
a reminder that says kind of goes along with some of the things that, that you were describing about how to make a resolution that you'll keep. You have to note whether you're making progress. You have to keep track of the progress. You have to keep reminding yourself of the progress. You have to understand that inside of that progress, there are a million little readjustments that had to get made to make the progress to happen and that that's our natural gift and that we do that all the time. So. Yes, we see lots of problems, but problems are opportunities to create and design, and the evidence shows that our ability to create and design in the long run is improving the quality of life for humans and improving the circumstances of life for humans profoundly, persistently. That's what we want our listeners to really grab from this conversation, which is the, the, the deep understanding that although the problems seem insurmountable at times, or the death and destruction that happens are, are terrible to our feelings and dramatic, we are at the same time improving, and many of us are improving in our own lives. With that, I'm going to take a small break and say you're listening to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. We're here in the studio with our engineer, Mike DeLora, and the philosopher, Charles Bush. I want to remind you all, by the way, that everything you're hearing on this program are the, opinion, are the, are the opinions of myself, Dr. Richard Miller, of Mike DeLora, and Charles Bush, and nothing you're hearing on this program is, is to be seen as representative of any other person or any other entity in this world. That's our disclaimer. We have to speak for ourselves. We, huh? <laughs> we, speak, we speak for ourselves and we speak for ourselves only, and it's important that everybody know that because we don't want to be generalizing to others who yeah. may not disagree or maybe disagree with what we're saying here. So changing our story you're listening to this program and you're saying to yourself, you know, I have this kind of life that I live. Are these people actually saying that I could live a whole nother kind of life? I mean, what, how does, what does that look? Do I change my name? Do I change my job? Do I divorce my wife or husband? Do, do I leave my What are they talking about? I mean, I've got a, you know, I, I've got a, a family. I've got this. I mean, I know of my position in the, where I go every day. What does it look like to to change to change your story? How do you, you know, to change your and and do you change your story by changing one little thing, or does it mean, for example, there's a story I just read about a guy named Eric Adams, who's the borough president of the borough of Brooklyn in New York City, and he was given a diagnosis of type two diabetes, which he got after having severe abdominal pain, and his, his lab tests were like off the chart. And for some reason, like some other Americans, he spurned taking medication, and he decided to explore what other, other avenues were open to him for this diabetes that he had. And so what he did was he adopted a vegan diet He's, this is, by the way, a former police captain. He, he started a vegan diet. He started preparing his own meals. He started working exercise into his everyday routines. And he shed 30 pounds. He completely reversed his diabetes. Therefore, he, he was taken out of the category of about to possibly have a heart attack, a stroke, nerve damage, kidney disease, visual loss, and cognitive impairment. He changed his story. Is that a change of a story? Absolutely. Charles? Did absolutely. he change his story? To, and and, and uh, 
partly um, what we could say is that physical reality, reality and biological reality combine to set limits. How we work inside those limits is a function of our stories and our beliefs. We can't, we can't simply believe physical reality radically into a different shape. Now, we may, in fact, be able to impinge on physical reality with our minds. That's one of the things that you explore, the ways that we, that we do that. Those of us who were part of the, the psychedelic opening that happened uh, in the late 60s and 70s discovered that belief and the activity of mind was uh, much more powerful than we guessed. If you look at uh, the cell phone that's sitting on the desk in front of you, that's a product of mind, that's a product of story, that's a product of beliefs, and it's mostly a function of the discovery of thousands of invisible sentences that are true about how electrons and molecules move, and yet it turns out to produce a little flat thing that you can talk to anybody all around the world in. A product of mind. A product of mind in combination with the real structures of the physical universe. So the, the universe gives us hard structures that we have to work inside of. The mind opens up any of hundreds of possible ways that we can interact with molecules and with atoms and with electrons. And it's the interaction, that dance between mind and the physical edges that, that the universe gives us to work with that produce the possibilities that create stories of great healing, stories of new ways of social reconnection with one another, stories about new ways to design transportation and cities, new ways to feed ourselves, new ways, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All coming from what you said, which is the interaction, that interface between mind and material. Absolutely. Mind and material. I read yesterday that children who are born now will never drive a car. Exactly. exactly. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? Children who are born, I'm going to say it again, children who are born now, it's predicted, will never drive a car because all the automobiles, by the time they're ready to drive in 16 years, will be automatic and, and self-driving. That's mind and That's material. Mind and material. Buckminster Fuller, uh, back in the in the mid from the mid fifties on, began to report on discoveries that he was making about the relationship between mind and material. And what he was pointing out is that our design capabilities, coupled with the abundance of the physical universe, somewhere around 1960 or so, caught up with each other, and there was enough material and enough know-how. It takes both. There's enough material and enough know-how to provide a standard of living for every human on the planet at a higher level than the richest, wealthiest, most pampered individuals had ever experienced. Now, Bucky discovered that, measured that, put that out, issued a challenge, said in 1960, somebody show me wrong. Somebody show me that we are not, we haven't in fact evolved through our stories and the gifts of the physical universe into a period of total abundance. Nobody's ever been able to refute his argument. And to me, that opens up the most important era of philosophical thinking, design thinking, the use of mind to interact with material to produce advantage and high quality of life ever. 
that's where we're living right now. That's what we're living inside right now. The story that we're invited to begin to deepen our relationship with is a story in which if we look at a hundred years of change, we see that abundance in every area has continued overall, not for every individual, but for all of us as a whole, immensely. There are still areas where it's not. The next challenge, of course, is, and this may be the most difficult challenge we face, which makes it the most exciting, what if we begin to recognize the general story of abundance as a fact about the universe. We know enough and we have enough to do pretty much whatever we want in terms of improving the quality of life and solving not the foibles of human and physical life, but the real problems that, are, that, that make us short-lived and miserable and so on. Those things don't have to happen anymore, but we're going to have to figure out a way to deal with all the billions of us uh, and get all the stuff around and move The outside. billions of us who are still starving and who don't have enough water. I mean, I'm listening to what you're saying and I'm realizing I mean, the, 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 the extreme importance of taking both views at the same time. And it's a very hard thing to do. It's a particularly hard thing to do when you don't have abundance. Absolutely. And you're listening to this philosopher saying that everybody's standard of living is raising, 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 which it really is but you don't happen to be in that group at this particular time. I just got back from my two-week annual vacation in Mexico and interviewed a lovely young man who just had, who I've known for years and who got married this year and has a baby. And we were talking about housing, and he was telling me how if he and his wife, who both work, and uh, their uh, the grandmother takes care of the baby during the day, if they when they save up money to build a house, they have to be extremely careful about how rapidly they build the house. Because if they build it rapidly, they're going to get a knock on the door from somebody who's going to say, where did you get that money? And we want some of it. And that's the fear that they live in at a very basic level. This is a very basic you know, person who has a job as a waiter in a, in a hotel. And it's not like he has any kind of abundance of money. You know, they're saving and scratching. And yet that's the level of fear that they live in. And to listen to what we're talking about, I mean, we, I think he'd think we were out in outer space talking about abundance when he's worried about even, you know, building a, a, a small house. When I say a small house, I'm talking about cinder blocks. We're talking about very basic housing. And they're not that far away from us. And I think that apply, that maybe that particular story doesn't apply in the same way here. I don't think so. I don't know. I don't know of stories here where people start to build something and somebody knocks on the door and says, "Where are you getting the money?" Because we want some of it if you're able to buy a house. But it sure as heck is going on down there. There's a lot of belief. This is an aside from what we're talking about. But it, there's a lot of belief that that entire country is controlled by uh, narcotraficantes. Absolutely, sure. I see the phone is ringing, and maybe we'd like to uh, take a phone call, Michael. If you can put that person on. And by the way, if you want to call in, the number here is 937-5103, 937-5103, of course, in the 707 area. Sure, let's take it, Michael. Uh, welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Well, we hoped you were on the air, and I'm sorry you're not on the air, but we pushed the button, and I see Michael is pushing it, and you appear to be, uh, appear to be disconnected. So let's come back to, uh, to a story of how... We change our story and what's possible. 
So here, um, here's a practice. Uh, all we, when we, you know, it's New Year's, New Year's resolutions. New yes. Year's resolutions really say, I'm going to start a new practice in my life. I'm going to, I'm going to begin conscientiously tricking myself into doing a sequence of things that I hope will become a habit because I think that my life will get better if I change in, yes. a, in a certain way. Yes. Here's a practice. Um, you could, first of all, you could, you could simply start by spending a weekend with Peter Diamandis's charts. There are 80 of them. And, and at the end of the weekend, I guarantee you that if you'll just take a look at them carefully, you'll come away going, oh my gosh, look at that. It appears as though we're succeeding at an incredible rate in all the ways I wish we would. So then you begin with that as the core of a new story. What's the name of his book? It, the the book is called Abundance. You can't abundance. miss it because it's abundance. It's abundance. And I always like to name Diamanda, so it's like diamonds. You know, it's the diamond guy who's established that abundance is at hand and the time is here and away we go. Charles, you're such a philosopher. <laughs> you are such a philosopher. To say to, a, to, to say to the American public, to say to me, spend a weekend with a bunch of charts. I mean, <laughs> well, absolutely. Only a That's philosopher. Only, only a philosopher, philosopher would, do could say, would like say, say spend a weekend with a bunch of charts. Let's see if that person is back they're trying to get through here michael hi welcome to mind body health and politics you're on the air hi i'm carmine let me shut down the uh, turn off the radio can you hear me this time i can hear you perfectly great i called earlier it was dead who's this carmine hi carmine richard miller here yeah hi uh i i'd like to just mention something and, and get your response it deals with perspective if we were to give a party and invite everybody on earth to this party and allow everybody six square feet to stand, sit, put their sleeping bag, if you do the math, seven billion people would take up a square that was 40.7 uh, miles on a side. That means the rest of the planet right. is available for... <laughs> Do, do the math. It, it works. Right. Talk about abundance, huh? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, before you, I'm going to let you know, hang up and let you talk. But I'd like to mention my website, if I may. Please. It's called EconomistsWithoutBorders.tv. Say it again, please, Carmine. EconomistsWithoutBorders.tv. Thank you. I will take a look at it, and I hope you'll call in again sometime and tell us a little. Take the time to tell us a little about economists without borders. Yeah, but uh, let's all have a little perspective. Thank you for calling, Carmine. Yeah, and happy New Year to happy you. Happy New Year. What an interesting thing to point out to us. If and, all the seven billion people on the planet got six square feet each. It would take up 40 square miles, and then the rest, 40 square miles is, is just, uh, you know, down the street. Yeah. There, those little, those little kind of, uh, kinds of observations can help us reset our mind. Uh, and, and the beginning of the creation of story is an event that can reset our minds just enough to jolt us into looking then we have to actually articulate a new story. And the way you write a story is by you put sentences together that begin to tell a kind of tale. So suppose, for example, uh, as an antidote to the 50 bad news stories that the entire media feels obliged to generate newly every single day, suppose that um, in working with your own personal story, you said, well, I have an idea. Um, I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to carefully look for 
10 unusual and outstanding successes, improvements of life quality that I actually observe happening around me just today. And I'll go home and I'm just going to write these 10 sentences down, just 10 really simple sentences. I guarantee you, you're not going to have, for most of us, you're not going to have any problem finding 10. You may find a bunch of other stuff, but suppose you just sorted those out. And then suppose that at the end of the week, you glance through them again. And at the end of the month, you glance through them again. Now you have a collection of about 320 important, significant, personally experienced good news stories. So you could spread them in the neighborhood. You could so spread suppose them in the people, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm a practical guy, you know Maybe. that. So I'm listening to what you're saying and I'm thinking, suppose people listening to this decide, or at least a bunch of you, or at least a significant percentage of you, take out bunch, uh, decide, okay, I'm going to do what I heard on this program. I'm going to start spreading good news. I'm going to be thinking about positive things that have happened to me or somebody I know, and I'm going to tell those stories at work, or I'm going to tell those stories over dinner. And we get a movement going of telling, could we do that? Could we, could we change the story and start spreading the positive that's happening in our lives? I'll give you just a, just a, a tiny quick story. Could we tell the positive stories Why in not? our lives at the beauty parlor, at the barber shop, we could. at the bar and grill? We could. The great thing that happened to me or the interesting thing that happened to me or I know somebody who had something good that happened to them or the baby that was born. Can we do that? You bet. It would mean inverting. I mean, I, I went to a couple of New Year's Eve parties, met new people, talked to a, a large number of friends, kept track over the evening um, of how much of the total time when I was talking to other people, I listened to them tell me how bad things were and how they were going to get worse, and how much of the time I got the opposite. They spent... At over, New Year's Eve? Yeah, New Year's Eve. Over 70% of all the airtime was filled with complaints or descriptions about how bad things were or predictions about how bad they were going to become. 70%. This was a social evening of celebration. People were imbibing. You would expect them to be married. And they were. Everybody was happy and having a wonderful time. But then you go, and what were we talking about? And we were talking about how bad it's been, how it's getting worse, and how it's going to even get worse in the future. How can you not love and, 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 and respect a guy who's at New Year's Eve figuring out the percentage of people who are saying positive stories and negative stories? I, I think it's great that you did that. It's, and I think it's also important that you did that well, as well. Pretty, I mean, and we, how about you all listening? Can you remember yeah. you know, what you did on New Year's Eve and were people complaining? Is complaining become part of part of i think it's I, I again i think we have to remember it, 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 that it's valuable to note what's wrong because that's what begins the process of redesign and solution and move toward abundance so maybe you just went to the wrong parties you went you probably, hang out with a but you know philosophers hang out with people who complain mike you, you did you have people complaining at the parties that you went to on on uh, on new year's eve I think Charles and I uh, hang out in a different crowd there. Yes, I didn't hear that. See, you do. But, you know, we see things as uh, not as they are, but as we are, you know. And so it's an opportunity for us to, uh, when we hear ourselves talking, be able to explore what we're saying. Let's take that call. I see the person's been trying to get through. Yeah, it's going on there. Stay with us. We're going about to take your call. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You are on the air. Good morning. Good morning. Wonderful gentleman. Um, hi, Charles. Hi, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I heard a gentleman, I wish I were him uh, to translate it, but he said there is no such thing as positive or negative. 
it just is. Whatever it is, it just is. But um, in defense, I think of those 70% of people who were verbalizing, as you were saying, you know, the urgency of what's happening is that <clears throat> there, uh, there is some bad stuff happening, like bullies. And, uh, you know, it could be better, but these naysayers perhaps are making it hard for us to uh, move forward. Anyways, I, I could, I'd like to hear what you have to say. Thank you. Thank you for calling in, and Happy New Year. I think that that we can, in fact, uh, begin to live inside a verbal story that reflects genuine abundance and our ingenuity in taking care of and bringing joy into every day. I think really what I'm saying is you have to do the experiment. Uh, it, it's, not the experiment. A, it's not the sort of thing that just saying it is so. If you adopt as a practice non-complaining, and the aggressive searching for outcomes and activities that improve the quality of life and that you focus on these things, what it may do is it may change and free up a huge amount of creative energy for you to use. Absolutely, all those folks who were complaining had in mind that they wanted to fix things. I just was thinking about this movie, and I really want to recommend it. I am going to recommend it to all of you listeners. It's called Play It Forward. Yes. Remember the movie Play yeah, It Forward? absolutely. Play It Forward is a story about going out and doing random good, just going out and finding somebody and doing something good for them without wanting anything in return. Right. And if we all went out and did something, I mean, it could be the slightest thing. It could be just saying thank yous to somebody. It could be buying somebody a cup of coffee. I remember years ago, there was a little movement going on where you would pay the $1 toll, that's all it was, for the, for the person behind, behind you, you yeah. on the bridge, right? Yeah. It's paying it forward. Yeah. Because I, I like what you're saying about putting into practice what we're talking yeah. about because yeah. that's what we'll really we can't really do all that much about Sacramento or Washington DC but we can do a lot about our neighborhood and that's what I want to bring this home to as we end the show we can do a lot about our neighborhood we can change the story in terms of saying positive things we can change the story in terms of telling people stories of good things that happen we can do nice things for our neighbor we can find out about somebody who's sick and bring them some food. We really can do that in the neighborhood. We can find out about somebody who needs a babysitter because they can't afford it, and you can get friendly with them and take care of their child. There are things that we can do in the neighborhood, and that will make our lives better, won't it? And we do that all the time, and that's why they are getting better and better, actually. Because we are because doing things. Because we are doing it. They're not getting better by accident. They're getting better because we design and put into play real solutions to real problems every day, all of us. Well, it looks like we're getting a signal here to wrap things up, and I want to thank each and every one of you for listening and participating in today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, which is made possible by all the good people at KZYX, by our in-studio engineer, my dear friend, Mike DeLora, and today's guest, Charles Bush. Please listen in again in exactly two weeks at 9 o'clock. If you want to study Lyme disease, you're going to be tracking the animal thought to be most responsible for its spread. I'm Jim Metzner, and this is the Pulse of the Planet. We are about to go check some live traps that we've set to capture small mammals. 
which play a very important role in the ecology of Lyme, supporting feeding by ticks and infecting those ticks with the pathogens that make us sick. We're in the woods of Millbrook, New York, on the grounds of the Cary Institute of Ecosystem Studies with senior scientist Richard Osfeld. This one has somebody in it. So here's a white-footed mouse. What I'm going to do is gently dump the mouse into a plastic bag that allows me to handle it by the scruff of the neck, uh, to inspect it, to determine its sex, its weight, whether it has any ticks on it, its breeding condition. And then I will weigh it, determine what individual mouse it is, if it's been a given.